right, well, I made my decision. Let's turn to John chapter 2. And let's just carry on with this wonderful gospel account, John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, we are confronted with a very famous scene. Here Jesus performs his first miracle, turning water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. An initial reading of this account suggests that Jesus simply performed a miracle to avoid potential embarrassment for a bridegroom. But there are several clues that reveal there is substantially more going on in this account than a casual reading might suggest. What is the meaning of this delightful miracle? Let's read beginning with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the mash of the feast. So they took it. When the mash of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the mash of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, this wedding was likely a small provincial family affair. The fact that Jesus attended with his mother and his brothers suggests that this was a wedding of a family friend or perhaps even a relative. Mary's anxiety over the lack of wine certainly suggests that she had a role in organizing or catering the food for the wedding. Many of our ladies have been similarly involved in organizing weddings for relatives, for friends, and you can know something of Mary's consternation. Cana was located near Nazareth. This is Jesus' childhood home. It's up in the mountainous regions west of the Sea of Galilee. And like Nazareth, Cana was a relatively unimportant place in the first century, though it was larger than Nazareth. And weddings in those days could last upwards of a week. They felt more like family gatherings than one-day events. In a first century culture, it was the bridegroom's responsibility to guarantee enough food and wine was provided for his guests, and that's clear in our text. So that gives you the setting. 
Now, Mary probably was not looking for Jesus to perform a miracle. That's how the account is often read. But we have no reason to expect that Mary was actually looking for a miracle. She had never actually seen Jesus perform a miracle before, so far as we know. And it's true that Jesus' response to Mary in verse 4 is indeed enigmatic. My hour has not yet come. But that response probably shocked Mary also. Verse 11 suggests that Jesus' disciples were not convinced believers when the wedding began. No one really understood exactly who he was. They hadn't seen his miracles yet. He had not yet manifested his glory. So we have no reason to believe that Mary was actually looking for a miracle. In other words, don't read this account in light of the later miracles that are coming, in light of what we're going to learn about Jesus down the road. For the previous 30 years, Jesus has just labored in obscurity. And Mary had likely come to rely increasingly on Jesus and his resourcefulness as the oldest male in the home. This is probably true because Joseph most likely had died at this point. Most scholars believe that Joseph's absence in the Gospels indicates that he had already died. So it's quite possible this account that we just read would have gone completely unnoticed had Jesus not spontaneously performed a miracle. Now, this miracle really has incredibly deep significance, and I want to show that to you by discovering five clues. If you'll detect these five clues, all right, this passage will really open up to you, I think, in a whole new way. All right, so here they are. Number one, the first clue is found in verse 11, where we read the term signs. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. All right, notice that word signs, and let's turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, when you're working through a book of the Bible, it can really take a lot of effort to discover the author's purpose. In some cases, scholars spend years analyzing a text and trying to figure out the major purpose of a book. But John is going to make it very easy for us. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and verse 31, John tells us exactly why he wrote. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel is an unabashed proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John selects certain signs to demonstrate it. The word signs in verse 30 is the same word that John used back in chapter 2 to describe Jesus' first sign. That first sign, again, was turning water into wine. That's the first sign that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, John, again, selectively chooses several signs or miracles to make his case 
that Jesus really is the Christ, and we just read one of them back in chapter 2. You may be surprised to learn that excluding the resurrection, John only records seven miracles or seven signs that Jesus performed. Now, compared to the synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John records comparatively few miracles. John's focus was not on the quantity of miracles that Jesus performed. I want to know, then, where is John's focus? And to show you that, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and when you contrast John with Matthew... I think John's account will become really clear. In Matthew 4, we transition from Matthew's introduction to Jesus' public ministry. Jesus survives three temptations in the wilderness. And now notice in Matthew 4 and verse 23, a statement that prefaces Jesus' Galilean ministry. It prefaces what's to come in Matthew, verse, 20, verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and notice what else he did, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now that statement summarizes the following chapters. So in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew records an extended example of Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We call that the Sermon on the Mount. Then in chapters 8 and 9, what Matthew's going to do is explain the phrase, every disease and every affliction. Well, what does that look like? Every disease and every affliction. Well, turn to chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, and here's where Matthew begins to explain every disease, every affliction. And you will notice how Matthew emphasizes quantity. Mark and Luke do also. Matthew emphasizes the abundance of miracles that Jesus performs. Every disease, every affliction. In one chapter, Jesus performs three miracles in rapid progression. If you just scan your eye across that chapter, in the first 15 verses, Jesus heals a leper a paralytic, and Peter's mother-in-law with a fever. And he's just getting started. Look at verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So whoever came to him, all right? Lots of people come to him, and he just heals them all. And before the chapter concludes, Jesus also calms a storm, and he has healed two more men from demon possession. So in one chapter in Matthew, we have more miracles than the whole account of John. In just one chapter. Matthew 9 then opens with Jesus healing another paralyzed man. And beginning with verse 18, Jesus heals two women. And then in verse 27, Jesus heals two blind men. In verse 32, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man that could not speak. And then finally, notice what Matthew 9 and verse 35 says. Here's another statement about the abundance of miracles. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. 
All right? So clearly what Matthew is doing is emphasizing the quantity of miracles that Jesus performs. A great variety of miracles of every kind, Jesus performs them all. By my count, Matthew records 28 specific miracles, 29 if you count the curse in the fig tree. He also makes several statements like the one that we just read where Jesus heals every disease, every affliction. So that means that math records for us four times the number of miracles that John performs, plus these categorical statements about everybody and all kinds of diseases. So again, let's think our way back then into John. John records only seven miracles. What do we make of this? Well, certainly, John is not trying to decrease Jesus' power, not by any means. But John's focus is not on quantity. Rather, John is going to use miracles in a much more targeted way. He is less concerned with quantity and much more concerned to develop the quality of the miracles or the meaning of the miracles that Jesus performs. That's how John will make his case that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's slow down and let's look at this miracle. Sometimes in Matthew, the miracle counts just come so fast, you don't stop to really think about them. In John, you're forced to slow down and really look at that sign. What's going on here? Jesus, I mean, John rather wants us to really reflect on Jesus as the miracle worker. And this is because others have performed miracles before Jesus. Moses performed miracles, Elijah performed miracles, but they weren't God. John forces us to really take a much slower approach, look at the sign and identify the true identity of the miracle worker. That's his point. And very often what John will do is situate his miracle in context in such a way that it really invites reflection. And let me just give you two examples of this. In John chapter 6, we have a record, don't turn there, but we have a record of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Well, guess what? you find that same miracle in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here's what you don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John 6 also records Jesus' lengthy discourse on the bread of life coming down out of heaven. You're thinking about the bread of life, and you're reflecting on him multiplying the bread. Oh, what's going on here? As a second example, in John chapter 9, we have a record of Jesus opening the eyes of a blind man. Well, Jesus healed blind people in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here's what you don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's account stretches over 41 verses. There's a whole dialogue that follows concerning Jesus' true identity. All right, so does that put it together for you? John really is not focused on the quantity, the sheer number of miracles. He really wants us to investigate the quality of the seven miracles that he does, in fact, record. 
Okay, so with all that in place, let's go back now to John chapter 2, and let's discover several additional contextual clues that really point out Jesus' true identity. The second clue is found in John's time reference in chapter 2 and verse 1. John notes the miracle happened on the third day. Well, what does that refer to? Why the third day? Well, understand that in context. Back in chapter 1, John paid very careful attention to a sequence of days through which he introduced Jesus' public ministry. Beginning with verse 19, in John chapter 1, we heard the testimony of John the Baptist to Jesus. We'll call that day 1. And I'm saying that because verse 29 then refers to the next day. That's day two. On that day, John acknowledged Jesus as the Lamb of God. Then verse 35 refers to the next day again. That's the third day. On the third day, John again acknowledges acknowledges Jesus as the Lamb of God, and two of his disciples go and follow Jesus. Then in verse 43... John tells us of the next day, and that is day four. On that day, Jesus summoned two more disciples. In chapter one, then, we find references to the first four days of Jesus' public ministry after he returned from his temptation in the wilderness. Now, there are no chapter divisions in the original, so read right into chapter two and verse one on the third day. John takes us forward then three more days to the seventh day. The wedding happened four days plus three days into Jesus' public ministry. The seventh day culminates then with a spontaneous, miraculous transformation of water into wine. On the seventh day, Jesus performs his first miracle. Now, friends, biblical numerology can get you into all kinds of trouble. There was lots and lots of irresponsible exegesis and wacky theories that come out of biblical numerology. However, it is true that seven in Scripture emphasizes completion or perfection. And John uses groups of seven so frequently that it really does seem deliberate. For instance, John's gospel includes seven major discourses. John uses seven major metaphors. And John includes seven miracles or seven signs. And seven times John records Jesus' claim to be the I am, the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And here in chapter 1, John introduces the Logos, the Creator, He introduces him to us over a seven-day period, culminating with a miracle of new creation. I don't think that's accidental. There are echoes of the creation week right through the passage. 
Jesus has come to introduce the new creation filled with new wine, better wine. The miraculous new wine surpasses the old. And that, friends, is your second clue. Jesus' miracle of new creation happens on the seventh day. And that leads to a third clue. And that clue is found in the astonishing amount of wine that Jesus created. Look again at verses 6 and 7. And there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification or bathing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. I was a child, I remember reading this account, and I pictured the servants just grabbing some available jars and going to the market and coming back with water, maybe going to a local well and coming back with water in their clay jars. Well, that actually is incorrect. These jars were made of, did you see the word, stone. These are large stone jars. These are not the ordinary clay jars that you would carry to the market. These heavy stone jars held lavish amounts of water for bathing. Now again, they probably had these lighter clay jars, but they would have had to gone back to the market many, many times to bring in all that water. Assuming the accuracy of the ESV translation of 20 to 30 gallons, a stone jar capable of holding 20 to 30 gallons Friends, that would have been a very large and mobile object. Filling these jars would have required numerous trips to the well or wherever they went to get the water. One gallon of water weighs approximately nine pounds. All right, so do the math. 20 to 30 gallons amounts to between 180 and 270 pounds of water. That is a lot of water. You don't carry that much water on one trip to the well. And they had to fill six of these large stone jars. We are talking about between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That is an astonishing amount of wine for a local wedding, especially when you consider it was merely the backup provision for the wine they already drank. That's a huge amount of wine. Why so much wine? Hold on to that question. It'll become clear at the end of the sermon. And that leads to a fourth clue. And that clue concerns how the miracle is situated contextually. Chapter 1, again, introduces us to Jesus as the Logos. He's the creator. And following that introduction, John records three narratives or pericopes Celebrating the Logos, making all things new. Let me show you. In John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus creates the new wine. Lavish amounts of better wine in the seventh day. In the next narrative, beginning with verse 13, we find Jesus suddenly 100 miles to the south down in Jerusalem. And he spontaneously cleanses the temple 
And then he promises to raise up a new temple within three days. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And following that temple scene, we are introduced in John 3 to a conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And there Jesus teaches the new birth. You must be born again. So here you have it. New wine, new temple, new birth. The Logos is making all things new. Moses and Elijah perform miracles, that is true. But neither Moses nor Elijah spontaneously created new wine, predicted a new temple, and then began preaching the new birth. He is making all things new. Clearly, his signs set him apart. Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. Now, in chapter 3, Nicodemus, a man learned in the Scriptures, knows that something is very different about Jesus, but he just can't quite put his finger on it. Who is this man? What does it mean to be born again? And from the miracle at Cana, through Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus, John really is emphasizing this one who has come to change everything. Everything is new. And of course, we understand this so much better than Nicodemus did. We understand this so much better than the disciples did at this time. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what Jesus came to do, to make a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new, the better has come. And biblical revelation climaxes in Revelation 21 with the coming of a whole new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And from the throne, we hear a voice crying out, Behold, I am making all things new. Well, friends, you really can't read very far into John's gospel without discovering that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed God's agent who has come to make all things new. New wine, new temple, new birth. That's the contextual clue. And that leads now to a fifth and final clue, and surely also a puzzling clue. The clue comes in verses 3 and 4, where Jesus offers a strange response to his mother. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Well, why does Jesus respond this way to his own mother? Well, notice first, that Jesus' Jesus's response to his mother as woman is actually a Jewish idiom that, while not disrespecting his mother, acknowledges there's space between them now. He now has his own mission to pursue. And Mary herself is going to have to think differently about Jesus. Let me read to you from the insightful words of commentator D.A. Carson. I think he puts it very well. Jesus' only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will. That's his guiding star. 
this must have been extremely difficult for Mary. She had borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary skills. Apparently, she had also come to rely on him as the family provider. But now everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. She, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right, so we're catching just a glimpse of that. Jesus is really setting himself apart from his family ties. He's beginning his public ministry. Mary is going to have to think differently about Jesus also. And that seems to explain Jesus' reference to Mary as woman. Mary is Jesus' mother, that's true, but she must subordinate herself and recognize her own inferiority to her own son. Well, what then do we make of the statement in verse 4? My hour has not yet come. How do you reconcile that statement, my hour has not yet come, with the fact that Jesus does indeed perform a miracle? And with the statement in verse 11 where we're told Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. My hour has not yet come. He manifested his glory. How do you put those two together? Which is it? My hour has not yet come. I'm going to manifest my glory. Well, when you understand the intersection between those two statements, the whole passage just really opens up for us, I think, in a wonderful new way. My hour has not yet come. He manifested his glory. When you read it that way, together with our previous clues, you have to wonder whether this whole narrative is merely a foretaste of a much greater manifestation of God's glory still to come. The hour has not come, but He is showing His glory. Well, this must be just a brief, momentary manifestation of a greater glory to come. Now, put that together with the previous clues. A miracle is a sign, a sign pointing us to Jesus' true identity. This miracle happened on the seventh day, a miracle pointing to the new creation. And this miracle is one of supreme abundance, lavish amounts of wine. But guess what? Jesus can make a whole lot more. And this miracle occurred in the context of Jesus making all things new, new wine, new temple, new birth. All of that is true. Moreover, Jesus does indeed manifest his glory sufficiently that his disciples actually believe on him. But don't forget, my hour has not yet come. So there's something greater coming. No matter how great this was, there's something much greater coming. 
I think we should say this, Mary, if you expected me to manifest all my glory, all my kingship, who I really truly am to all the world right now, well, guess what? The time is not yet quite right. When you put all that together, it seems that this miracle is a sign, like a signpost in the fog, just pointing forward to a glorious revelation still to come. The miracle then is a temporary glimpse into the future, a momentary window into the new creation. The miracle is a momentary, just a subtle revelation of the true bridegroom who has come for his bride. The bride, according to Revelation, is the future new creation specifically the new Jerusalem, and even more specifically, it's full of all the people of Christ from all ages, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom who can fill that whole city with lavish amounts of new wine, wine that never runs out, but his hour has not yet come. Now, why am I saying this? We'll skip ahead momentarily to John chapter 3. After introducing the new wine, the new temple, and the new birth, John circles back around to the testimony of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist adds a very important detail concerning Jesus' true identity. Who is he? People begin to flock to Jesus after leaving John behind. Well, is John upset by this development? Not at all. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Christ. The friend, that's John, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, friends, who is Jesus? Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus has come to claim his bride. Jesus has come to prepare for a wedding of his own. Now, in Jewish culture, whose responsibility was it to supply the wine? The bridegroom. And in the account of the wedding at Cana, did you notice how Jesus temporarily, momentarily assumes the role of the bridegroom? He takes on the responsibility for supplying the wine, and he does so lavishly, abundantly, and he does so on the seventh day, pointing to a new creation. But wait a minute. He also said, my hour has not yet come. When you put all that together, all right, Jesus is the bridegroom. He can indeed perform remarkable miracles supplying abundant amounts of wine, but this is only a hint of what's still to come. We're only catching a momentary glimpse of the greater glory to be revealed. That's why the miracle is a sign. It's a signpost. It's pointing. 
It's pointing to someone that's a greater future to come. Look at Jesus. That's the way to the greater future. That's the way to the new creation. Now listen to what Jesus then said in John 12 and verse 23. This is the night before he was crucified. Here's what he said. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John chapter 2, the hour has not yet come. In John 12, the hour has come. And again in John chapter 17, Jesus exclaimed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And Jesus, friends, went to his cross. And there he purchased his bride. His hour of glory had indeed come. He manifested his glory by purchasing his bride on a cross. And suddenly, at that moment, Isaiah's predictions concerning the coming Messiah become crystal clear. Listen now as I read from Isaiah chapter 24. The prophet Isaiah describes all of creation, the old creation, lying under a curse. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. The wine mourns. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth, the whole earth, the whole creation, the gladness is banished. What a grim scene when the wine perishes and the curse overruns the old creation. And can you imagine just having your wedding celebration in that context? No joy, no mirth, no dancing with tambourines in the streets. No wine. The wine is bitter and impoverished. The curse just destroys the whole creation. Well, what can be done? Well, listen to what Isaiah says then in the following chapter. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts, and that word Lord is the word Yahweh, and Yahweh is Jesus on this mountain, Jesus will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. All that darkness, he's going to swallow it up. The veil that is spread over all the nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will take, he will take away from all the earth, the whole creation. He's taken it all away. For the Lord, Yahweh, has spoken. 
Now, can you imagine having a wedding in that context where all the sorrow is removed? God's answer the curse with the abundance of God, God. Let me say that again. God answers the curse with an abundance of wine and a celebration of delightful food. And that feast, the Lord Yahweh, forever and forever it takes away the stain of the curse. He turns sorrow into laughter. Death is swallowed up in victory. And friends, that is precisely what was happening at the cross when Jesus manifested his glory to the world to bear away the sin of the world through crucifixion and usher in the new creation through his resurrection. When you put all that together, Jesus is indeed the bridegroom calling the nations to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So John 2 was merely a hint, a momentary flash of Jesus' true identity, the Creator who makes all things new. And according to John 20, He recorded this miracle so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And friends, what kind of life are we talking about? Well, it's the kind of life that Isaiah just described, where the curse is just lifted from the entire creation. No more Omicron, right? No more sickness, no more disease, no more death, no more sorrow, mirth, laughter in the streets, feasting. The incarnate Christ is wed forever to his people and to his new creation. The incarnate Christ is forever related to his creation because he remains a creature. The new Jerusalem is full of Jews and of Gentiles. That new Jerusalem is prepared, as Revelation tells us, as a bride for her husband. Now listen to Amos as he also describes the future glory. Amos 9 and verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. In other words, that great abundance of food and the mountains. Think of this, the mountains, not a few stone jars. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. That's in the future. Amos predicts a day of salvation and deliverance for Israel, attended by lavish amounts of wine just cascading down from the hills and from the mountains. That's how Amos pictures our salvation. Joel likewise speaks in chapter 3 and verse 18 of a coming day when, quote, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And when you just piece together these Old Testament references to Israel's salvation, especially as they are associated with the new wine, the abundance of wine, I think, again, the significance of this miracle in John 2 really comes in the very sharp focus. Who is the bridegroom who prepares that great marriage supper? These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God.